0: making space a podcast about the unique ways that theme parks tell stories in this episode i'll interview theme park designer don carson My name is Ian K, and in this episode, I am honored to be speaking with Don Carson, an exceptional theme park designer, artist, and blogger. Don, welcome to Making Space. Well, thanks. <laughs> I'm
1: happy to talk to you.
0: Don, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe clue the audience into some of the projects that you worked on that they might be familiar with?
1: Well, I'd like to start by saying that, uh, that although I had the honor to work with Walt Disney Imagineering, I haven't worked with them in-house for for a couple of decades. In fact, uh, there are people who have been working at Imagineering for 23 years who started after I left. So um, although I freelanced with them for years, I'm not actually uh, working for the Walt Disney Company. But when I did get to work with them, I did get to work on uh, Splash Mountain for Florida as the uh, show designer. I worked under Joel and Cicero, uh, who was the concept lead on Toontown, and I was one of the show designers for that. Uh, worked on Blizzard Beach and um, uh, Disney's America and countless other little side projects while I was there. And then over the years, as a freelancer, dabbled uh, on the concept end mostly of, you know, well, dozens and dozens of projects. Um, and as a freelancer, always working with uh, with other. Uh, theme park companies and non-theme park companies, uh, Universal and the Muppets and um, whoever was hiring at the time.
0: So my first question is that, um, and and bear in mind, I may come across as a little bit of a stalker, but I've just been reading your blog. So (laughs) until I mention like your cat's name or whatever, you you don't have to be worried. Okay. (laughs) So you, you studied illustration back in college, right?
1: That's right. Yes, I was started as a commercial uh, illustrator. I actually wanted to be a cartoonist, and the very first class I took was a cartooning class where the teacher basically said that there'd be no way on earth that anybody could make a living being a cartoonist. <laughs> so being very young, I believed him, and the next best thing was commercial illustration. And so I studied uh, to be a commercial illustrator for my four-plus years in college.
0: That's cool. I I love illustration. And from my understanding, a lot of the art form relies upon your ability to pick the exact right moment to convey the scene, uh, which is kind of daunting. It's like selecting a single frame out of a movie that implies the story just as clearly as watching the entire movie does. So what's your approach to picking the exact right moment?
1: Well, uh, it's kind of easy to to do an illustration of the actual action, but if you could do an illustration that suggests something that has just happened or something's a building to happen, it draws the reader in even further, which is interesting because that really is basically what we're doing with theme parks. We're just having to be doing those things uh, in three-dimensional environments.
0: It is interesting, but I'm not sure that the same rules apply in theme parks. You can certainly show the moment of action just as easily as a moment of preparation or the aftermath of an action. Uh, so so how does the process of picking the exact right moment to depict change when you're doing it in a theme park as opposed to in illustration?
1: Well, uh, if I was to draw a line between illustration on one extreme and theme parks on the other extreme, dead center, I'd say, would be theater, traditional theater. Mm. Uh, in theme parks, it's it's like theater in that it is telling a story that is linear, but unlike theater, rather than sitting still in an audience most times, you're actually moving through that story. So there's an opportunity to do foreshadowing uh, as you enter a room that suggests the action that's to, that's to come or builds the tension. And then as you turn the corner, there's a payoff by that action being fulfilled. So... Uh, an illustration is capturing that moment of anticipation or tension, and theme parks is suggesting that, and then as you turn a corner, and this is specific to rides, you are um, fulfilling that tension or expectation with a full-blown scene. So you could think of a theme park attraction as being uh, a sequential uh, design to vignettes, but you'd be missing half the opportunity of leading the eye Around the corner to point to that next bit of action
0: that's fascinating what what you're describing actually reminds me of comics like, mm-hmm. like spatial comics uh, it's a sequence of images one after the other but instead of one panel after another it's like one room after another
1: and one advantage that, that the theme parks have is that it's too easy to look at the first frame and then sneak a glance at the last frame where the action is <laughs> yeah. and kind of bypass the action uh theme parks you can't you you really are you you can't if there's three rooms you can't in the first room know what the third room contains
0: right unless you push up on the lap bar but please listeners do not right. push up on the lap bar do not do that yes,
1: and yes. hands arms feet and legs exactly
0: um all right so you designed splash mountain in florida um and that was the the third version of the ride
1: it was the, the second and third were designed at the same time. Oh, okay. In fact, they were right across from each other. Uh, the, the model department had models going simultaneously. Oh, wow. The real advantage to, to be working on a Splash Mountain was because it had been done before, it was not a mountain that any other designer had any desire to, to claim. And so even though it was my very first project, I kind of got away with murder. I mean, I really we, we changed stuff and we evolved it. Mostly out of necessity because the flume had its width had changed uh, between the Disneyland version, so all the scenes had to change.
0: Right, right, right. The Disneyland version has four rows of one, whereas in right. Florida it has four rows of two.
1: Yeah, and it's also side by side seating in Florida as opposed to in your lap seating at the time that Disneyland's version opened. And that decision was, was uh, a load on load speed. You know, when you're having to uncomfortably sit in your uncle's lap, that's <laughs> It, that slows down the process of getting in it. But if you just pop into a seat next to each other, off you go, and we could get more people through the attraction.
0: Can you give us an example of some of the murders you got away with
1: on Splash Mountain? Uh, well, I was really intended to only be on the project for two and a half weeks just to make some slight alterations to the scenes so that they would fit in the new smaller environments because the, the flume was so much wider. Mm-hmm. And what it turned out was there, everything had to be redesigned from scratch. So being given the opportunity to redesign from from scratch, you go back to the original and you sort of reverse engineer it, ask questions about why the choices were made that were made when it was designed, not, to, not necessarily to make it better, to see whether or not there's, there's ways in which to evolve it. And uh, one of the things that I noticed when uh, we interviewed people getting off the ride at Disneyland was that... Um, it was. It wasn't necessarily clear to everyone that when they went inside the mountain, they had sort of left the world of of humans and went into the world of the cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, very much like the Song of the South fil- film does when Zippity Doodah sung, boom! All of a sudden, there's a splash of color. Right. So, goal number one was to see whether or not you know with this opportunity whether or not we could create a a division, a threshold, where I'm outside, I'm in Frontier Alignment, Walt Disney World, and zippity-doo-dah-boom, now I'm in a cartoon world where all these events happen. So that was the first goal. And then the other thing we noticed, uh, it was sometimes unclear as to what the story was at Disneyland. Uh, People who were uninitiated and very likely had not seen the film that the ride was based on when we asked what the story was said there's a story <laughs> you know um so we wanted to see whether or not not necessarily we told the story of of bear rabbit but that we at the very least in the queue uh, insinuated who the good guys were and who the bad guys were that the bad guys were after the good guy and that the good guy got away right. and that everybody was happy in the end so those are really the two two major goals you uh, know how do you fit to cartoon world into Frontierland and then how do you tell a, a good good guy bad guy story that resolves itself uh, from the beginning of the end of the attraction um so whether or not we succeeded or not is everybody else gets to decide but that was our, our goal
0: well for my money yes you you all did succeed um, this podcast is about the unique ways that theme parks tell stories, and Splash Mountain was one of the very first stories that we covered, specifically because it's so clear. So, you know, well
1: done. Well, that, well, good. That, that was the hope.
0: Now, bearing that in mind, uh, you and I have already discussed my analysis of Splash Mountain's story, uh, but that was in private. And since I featured it in the third episode of this show, uh, I wanted to give you a public platform to respond and, you know, tell me I'm full of it if you want. <laughs> uh, so if you'll let me bore you for a moment, I'll just run through my analysis again. Please do. Okay, so so as a reminder, um, I think the ride tells a, a, a really clear obvious story about brer rabbit escaping from brer's fox and bear um but i also think it tells a second less obvious story which is about us the writers right um mm-hmm. and on our and i think all theme parks Tell this story about us uh, in addition to a a story about the characters Um, and our story in Splash Mountain is that we want the big drop because that's what the ride promises right up front that humongous beautiful wow right through the briar patch Uh, and once we're on board the ride teases us about the big drop. Instead of giving us the big drop, it gives us lift hills that end in plateaus and a few smaller drops and a beautiful, but sugary dark ride. Um, and then the ride's tone gets like disproportionately dark, right? We've got vultures dressed like undertakers who are threatening us and a long, dark climb where we're left alone with our thoughts and Br'er Fox listing all the ways he wants to mutilate Br'er Rabbit. I think it's the only time someone mentions skinning (laughs) a character in a theme park that I, I know of. Um, so now when we least want the big drop, that's when the ride gives it to us which is all to say that that the ride itself is the villain of our story and that to me feels like a betrayal which is kind of a shame because the, otherwise i do firmly believe that the ride is a masterpiece um and and i feel like this one choice distracts a lot of people from enjoying it as much as they could uh so that's the analysis i present my throat to you don have at it
1: <laughs> well you yeah. I can say, having worked on Splash Mountain, that um, a lot of what you're talking about, I think, is innate in the process of storytelling, is that you're, you definitely want to build, certainly in a, in a ride, if you were to strip all of the theming away from Splash Mountain, those, those dips are, are, are a tease. Uh, You don't want to give away the big drop too early.
0: No, of course not. Absolutely. I I super understand how the designers could arrive at the story that's in Splash Mountain. Like, of course, you want to leave the big drop for last and build anticipation for it. And if you're adapting the Br'er Rabbit stories, then getting thrown into the Briar Patch is a natural climax. Like, I I
1: get how you got there. No, no, no. No, but I, I I, I think you're correct, although I think that none of us thought that hard about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we wanted the story to build. Um, I think we wanted, uh, Brer Rabbit to be in, in peril, you know, cause he's pretty much laughing right. it off until that last minute. And, uh, then he tricks them. Um, but we also understood that there were going to be people who were going to ride the ride just for the fun of it and really could care less about the characters. They were just a diversion. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we've all had that moment where we get to the top of any roller coaster and you go, "Okay, I really like off now," <laughs> and I think the Splash Mountain does a really nice job of delivering that, especially with that, especially at Walt Disney World, that spectacular view of the castle as you're you're popping out the hole um, and the rivers of America. And, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, such a beautiful it's a, view. It's, it's a incredible. great, it's a great moment. Yeah, whether whether we we meant to portray betray the rider or not, I don't think i think sure
0: <laughs> but but it wasn't it, well there you have was it, it, good night ladies it wasn't it
1: wasn't high on my my priority list it was <laughs> it was different defi- sure, that's fair it was mainly just giving people a wonderful d- diversion as they uh as they rode through the attraction surprised them with some drops made it dark uh and, and actually often we make things dark so that we don't have to pay for the theming inside those spaces. <laughs> you know, Haunted, nice. Haunted Mansion with the lights on is just not the same place that it is when you're riding yeah, through no. Yeah. You don't pay for anything you don't look at.
0: So let's talk about something that you do prioritize when you're designing the story of a location like Splash Mountain. Um, could you explain how you established the quote unquote rules of the ride?
1: Well, the, when you're working on a, on a project that starts out with a handful of people, a producer, a show designer, a production designer, a couple of folks, Uh, it's easy for you to have conversations about what it is that uh, you're building and have agreement on it. Um, The success of that finished product is based upon the fact that you've all agreed these are all the pieces and this is why we're doing it. But as the project gets into production, those numbers begin to expand exponentially so all of a sudden what was a dozen people is 300 or 400 people and i discovered that as we got into production that i spent most of my time not designing but sitting down the latest person on the project and telling them the story about what it <laughs> was we were all attempting to uh to do and i got pretty exhausted I, I just felt like i know i've said this before but and i would just tell them the story the goal mm-hmm. the goal was to get them invested in and it was also a goal was to allow them to make decisions that I wasn't going to be made, be able to make. I'm not going to be everywhere at the same time. I won't be in Florida the entire right. time. And I found that distilling the, the storyline uh, helped that process. I ended up writing a document I call a design intent, which is like a one or two page couple of paragraphs and some drawings that suggest these are the rules by which the this universe functions. And in the case of Splash Mountain, the rules were, In this world, in frontier land, there are two types of construction. There is human-built, and then there's critter-built. And so if humans use hammers and saws, critters use teeth, and they gnaw through things, and they chew. Uh, So while humans might nail something together, the critters might lash something together. And so going through Splash Mountain, you can really tell what has been built by a critter and what has been built by a human based upon... The construction method and something as simple as that rule can can be handed off to people i've never even met before and then later on i'll come in to look at something and they'll say what do you think and i'll say it looks fine and they'll go no it's not (laughs) because a critter would do this and they'll actually (laughs) argue back to me how it's not fulfilling the rule that had been established that everybody agreed upon Um, I'd say that all projects that have been successful have been ones that I've been able to instill or distill a concept into a couple of rules of design. Um, And those can be color choices. Um, Working with colorists, they'll they'll choose uh, this palette is only used for this environment. And so when we bring in graphics, we use this other color that offsets the the rules of it so that they stand out. Nice, nice, nice. And I've worked with many wonderful colorists that uh, so exceed my understanding of color, but bring to the project something that just drives home, whether or not it's critter built or human built, or whether you're in a cartoon world or you're in frontier land, that far exceeds anything I could have come up with in my own brain.
0: This is a a complete side note, but um, I don't know if you've read John Hench's book on theme park design. It's called uh, Designing Disney, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, He has, you know, a a bunch of great insights, but a bunch that just confuse me. Mm -hmm. Like, he opens the book by declaring that uh, there are three crucial categories to designing a theme park. And first is story. And I'm like, cool, story. Okay, obviously, I agree with that one. And second are the characters. And I'm like, okay, I'm less convinced. That seems like it's part of story, but I can see where you're coming from. And third is color. And, like, what? I mean, I I don't disagree, but why specifically color? Why not, like, shapes or music or, I don't know, urban design? And he never really explains why, so while I don't doubt that he's right, I spend my life paranoid that there's this, like, Illuminati alchemy that runs theme park design and also the world.
1: Well, I think there is. And John Hinch, that was his thing. I mean, he was the colorist for the company and he was the one that determined uh, what did not and did not get in. Uh, I saw him and his um, support person getting on airplanes with uh, sheets of plywood that are three feet by three fight with flat pieces of color on it so that they could fly to France and hold it under the light, the French light, and determine whether that color would work. Uh, Jesus. Because he's right, that <laughs> is, it does affect. Holy it God. does affect it. Um, he also came yeah. up with the sort of go-go away green color that gets painted on surfaces that that unfortunately are visible inside the park, and yet we don't look at them because that green color sort of keeps keeps us from looking at them really they make the buildings it's like go the away. least
0: interesting color right yeah. it's like the, the, the deliberately uh, your eye just ignores it automatically yeah,
1: yeah. And, um, and I think I think it's also good to know that you don't know <laughs> I, I am certainly of the camp yeah. but that I that my color sense is is really crappy um that I really really do depend tremendously on colorists uh, to, to if I can give them and distill the rules then they'll take it and run with it and take it to new places. In the case of Splash Mountain, the, the painter who was responsible for paying the ride was very agitated, and so he right at the beginning he pulled me aside and he said, I've looked at your color model, I think it's wonderful, but I have, a, I have something I'd like you to let me do if you'll let me. And he opened up this full can, like a house paint can of ultramarine blue, which is like electricity in a can, and he said, I want to paint this straight, and I said, Go for it, and he, he he said really I said yes do it I trust you I you know that that seems like a mistake <laughs> to me but who am I, and boy was he, boy was he right because when you put the sort of uh, amber and pinkish lights that the show lighting people put in there it tones down everything. Uh, he was uh. co- he was correct that the trees needed to be straight ultramarine blue, um, which look heinous in the work lights but look magical in the show lights. Wow.
0: All right, so uh, returning to my main line of questioning, I've always loved how you can tell whether each building was constructed by humans or critters, but what's really cool is that the two cultures are united with just enough of an authorial voice to let you know that they still belong together together. Uh, like in the same story. Mm -hmm. Um, So in addition to having like this lovely crossfade from like, you know, the Frontierland uh, train station, um, which works in the Splash Mountain world and works in the the Thunder Mountain world, um, it also like, I I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it is the color palette, but they they clearly belong together in this same world, uh, which is very impressive. And that was
1: a real struggle. That was the first thing we worked on was how do you build a Southern swamp next to to the desert but yeah. you know monument valley Jeez. and stick a train station that's supposed to live in the service both sides uh <laughs> and the way we did it i in hindsight was we picked something that lived in neither of the world but had pieces of each other so the color palette yeah. leans towards splash but the construction leans towards sort of the gold rush town of oh. of the uh, the desert and uh, I think that that's where the success lies. At early designs, we went with a more traditional Frontierland station, and that didn't work in either place. Huh. It's the, sh- it's the sort of tin shack design that we used for, for Frontierland station that I think helps that work. Fascinating. Okay.
0: Okay, so returning to your process, could you just like walk us through a little bit? Um, you know, for example, that you're building Splash Mountain and you've established mm-hmm. the design intent and you know the rules that you're working with, right? Um, you know how the critters construct their buildings and mm-hmm. you've decided that you're going to have X amount of toon birdhouses featured in the queue and that they're all going to look different because they all have different characters like living inside of them. Um, so do you develop... Those characters, do you like even subconsciously say, okay, the bird inside this house is Mr. Bluebird, so we should paint the walls blue, or okay, this bird has a family, so we've got to make their house bigger than the others, or anything like that.
1: I think I think yes, that's that is true. I, I don't whether or not we actually design and draw out the, the occupants. No, not necessarily. Right, but um, no, you everything you design is. Is keeping in mind the occupants who owned it. Did they have a porch? How would they sit on the porch? You know, did the, Did the roof need repairing? How would a critter repair the roof? You know, what kind of materials would they <laughs> use? Would a bird use different materials than a chipmunk? Um, is there a nut motif? Is there a rock motif? Is there a twig motif? And uh, and then I mean, really, that's just the fun part of the job. Uh, is doing that, and then communicating that design to the people who are responsible for building it. So you're keeping in mind not only this critter builds the roof out of leaves, but this leaves are going to be made out of fiberglass and probably pulled in a, from a mold or vacuum formed. and then it's got to have, hold a speaker of this size, so the, the body of the, of the little log cabin has to be big enough to hold the contents of this industrial outdoor speaker. Um, or that the door has to face a certain direction because that's where it needs to broadcast the sound and the door is where the speaker noise comes out of. Um, so all those things are in your mind simultaneously. And as you're designing it, you're also sitting down with the person who's either fabricating it or is going to be installing it. Now, how is it going to be hung from a tree? Can you hang it from a tree? Can Can there be a supporting pole that looks like it's hung from a tree but isn't hung from a tree? All that stuff is constantly coming up. And and amazingly, especially nowadays, uh, those conversations happen as you're designing it, not something that comes down months down the line.
0: Now, you've also designed video games in your career. Narratively, video games have a lot in common with Mm -hmm. theme parks uh, because both tell stories about us in the audience, uh, which is great because it lets us behave how we want. But it's also tricky to design because it means that the storytellers can't actually control their main characters. Um, So how is... Designing a video game different from designing a theme park.
1: I think in the the 90s the theme park industry was really worried about whether or not it was going to be able to compete with The depth and breadth and, uh, Hours of entertainment that a $40 $50 video game was giving them and so there was an attempt to make rides games Where you had a goal or you had a score at the end of it and in the early 2000s and into the present they have, have have realized that the reason people go to theme parks and the reason why they're still viable form of entertainment is people are going to have a shared experience, which is something mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily happen on the couch as easily. Um, so uh, it's not just drawing an individual uh, singular, singular through an attraction. It's you and your family or you and your friends through a space where you can react and look at each other and Have the, sh- the shared experience. So when we think of the the guests experience, we're not thinking singular We're thinking in a group um, Not that they can't be consumed as an individual, but we want them to walk out of it laughing together or Look how wet you got <laughs> uh, Is just something <laughs> that you're not going to have in a video game
0: that's a really beautiful insight. You know, I never really, I've thought about theme parks in terms of like being like a, a Rocky Horror Picture Show experience mm-hmm. where you just sort of go to Bond and you know all the rhythms and the ghost host says this and then you laugh along with him or you don't if you're a good guest and mm-hmm. don't want to ruin it for everyone else mm-hmm. and you know, et cetera. But but yeah, that's specifically because you are, you are going through these uh, heightened experiences, uh, with the people around you, that, that there's a, a bonding that doesn't happen even when you're just at home doing the normal things you do to bond with your family. Yep.
1: Yeah. I think that that yeah, is, And that's not happening out in the real world, especially when we go to restaurants and everybody at the table is looking at their phones. Um, well, not, right. not that that's not happening in line for Pirates of the Caribbean, too, but uh, it isn't happening as much on the vehicle, although I see that happening, too. <laughs>
0: Yes, that is one of the great design challenges that the art form is going to face for a while. Yep. And the reason I bring up video games is because on your blog, you had an anecdote about a game that you were designing called there.com, uh, which was kind of like a precursor to Second Life, mm-hmm.
1: right?
0: And you mentioned how... It turns out when you give players the ability to drive a vehicle, then they just want to run other players over. Um, so your design team had to move all of the spaces right. where the players could have it, like a conversation or do things that were important to the plot far away from the road, so they wouldn't get run over. Right. Uh, which which really does make me grateful that we don't have that kind of freedom in theme parks. They don't like, do that. think God, Autopia is strictly bolted down to the rails. Right. Well, I think I think
1: one of the main reasons that we learned that too late was that you give them anonymity you you let them have uh, a fake name and a fake person that they don't feel as though no one's looking them in the eye as they drive you down (laughs) Ah. they're looking at your character name and so i'm not as worried about theme parks being driven over by fellow guests Uh, but that is intrinsic to the, the internet world whether or not you've got trolls attacking you Uh, Your comments on YouTube or whether or not you're trying You're walking around a beach and someone runs you over with their buggy
0: I guess this is a cautionary tale to anyone who wants to make like a a, an eyes wide shut theme.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. No masks
0: (laughs) No masks (laughs) Now you started as an illustrator. So you were designing a lot of stuff in two dimensions But since then, you've gotten an Oculus Rift, right? You've started using virtual Mm -hmm. reality, designing stuff in three dimensions. How has moving from paper to polygons affected your storytelling?
1: Uh, Tremendously. Uh, I've worked on projects where I've done nothing but build models and not drawn at all, which seems sacrilegious to my illustration background. But one of the things that a two-dimensional illustration, apart from being pretty, does not communicate is what the backside of things look like. So unless you're willing to draw a complete turnaround of everything that you've done, you inevitably you're going to be handing the design off to someone who's got to figure out how to budget it or build it based upon a non three-dimensional design. Uh, It's too easy to, to put happy guests the right size in a drawing, but it's harder when you have to build a model and you realize that it's supposed to sit six, but only three will fit. A lot of people are focusing on the virtual reality as sort of the end product. And I, and I have no doubt that theme parks are going to have those kind of experiences in them. Um, but I, I really would like to see it more as a design tool. The other great advantage to doing the 3D stuff is that it can be handed off to architects and show set people early on in the process. Uh, we can start having a conversation about the size of the facility and where do you exit and you know where's the egress where the out of the vehicle, go, where right, do the air right. conditioners go. Um, there is a danger when that happens of the, the air conditioner location and the bathroom location dictating the show, which can happen. <laughs> um, but if you're willing to work with those people or allowed to, then you can make decisions that retains the desire and the story you're trying to tell in the the show while still making it safe and have enough bathroom stalls.
0: It's surprising to me that what you're describing sounds so straightforward. Like it's surprising to me that VR isn't the norm, that you have to be on a soapbox at all about this. Well,
1: it's less and less so. I'd say that six months ago was a different um, century just in the last six months, we have clients that have VR rigs that they're asking for our models so they can view them. It's not even a matter of us promoting our stuff for them. They've already got the equipment and they're looking at it in there.
0: When you mentioned that the air conditioner location and the bathroom location can dictate the show, uh, it reminded me, um, I have friends who work in Avatar Land. I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember if it's Navi River Journey or Flight of Passage. I can't, but Uh, one of the rides anyway, has an empty room in the back. And I I, I imagine, presumably, uh, it was supposed to have stuff in it, but whatever was supposed to go in uh, must have been canceled after they had already built Mm -hmm. the room or allocated the funds or whatever. So now there's this wasted real estate back there. And yeah, I I do wonder how much the designers could have used those extra inches.
1: Well, and one of the perfect examples of, of how a design as big as something like Avatar Land can can get out the gate, and things can be built that have legacies that are no longer being adhered to. When we were designing uh, Toontown for Disneyland, uh, the, the Roger Rabbit ride was, for a brief time, going to be a Winnie the Pooh experience, only a very brief okay. time. The idea being that we were gonna have a ride vehicle that would spin, initially it was honey pots. And we also wanted to get people off the ground. We wanted the land to be kinetic. And we wanted the what eventually became Lenny the Cab. We wanted it to the cars to smash out of the front facades of the buildings in downtown Toontown, spin around above the heads of people, smash back into the building, and then finish out the attraction. So the original, wow. real, original design is designed so that the vehicles would ramp up to the second floor, would pop out. I think it's the electric company, uh, spin back through the glass factory, out back again, and then into the gag factory, making all the appropriate sounds and crashes and bangs and electric electric sounds. And so the steel package for that building is built for those vehicles, very heavy vehicles, to actually go along that upper balcony. That's why there's a balcony. Um, when they started getting into the design for the actual attraction, which opened a year after, they realized that if they were going to get those vehicles to ramp up to the second floor and ramp back down, that the entire ride would be nothing but ramps to get it, <laughs> to get it up. So eventually they decided to not have the attraction ever go to the second floor. Well, now we have a balcony with enough steel in it. To support vehicles that will never ever come out of the front of those buildings (laughs) through doorways that were never actually the doors that those vehicles would pop out of. Well, Disneyland opens, it has Disneyland's uh, Toontown opens, it has some acclaim, and uh, the Oriental Land Company says they want uh, Toontown um, for their park in Tokyo but the, pre- the prerequisite was that they wanted it identical in every possible way to the Disneyland one. Uh-oh. So when we built the one in Tokyo, we included all that steel that was holding up vehicles that never would go out of the building and never, uh, never did at Disneyland and never would at Tokyo.
0: <laughs> but, but why did someone like speak up and warn them not to invest in the second floor? Or, or was it like the monkey's paw where like, Ah, you wanted it to be exactly the same, and so you shall have its inefficiencies.
1: Well, I did not work um, on the Tokyo one, so those conversations may have had, and it may not be as structurally beefy, but the the aesthetically, that balcony is still there, despite the fact that it does not allow for vehicles to be up on the second level.
0: Well, it's a great balcony. I'm I'm glad they have it. Yeah, it's a good balcony. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot now. Uh, what's something about the state of present-day theme park design that you find to be discouraging?
1: Um, it's 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 hard to say discouraging because there are there theme parks like any entertainment form goes through cycles, goes through eras. I'd say that the discouraging thing right now, which is rampant in all things, is that nothing is done without an IP attached to it. Unless unless we use this intellectual property, um, we can't guarantee that people are going to be interested in coming to this attraction, um, which does not allow for a Jungle Cruise, a Haunted Mansion, a Pirates of the Caribbean to to be done because no one is willing to take the risk. You want to take people to places that are fantastical. Uh, and although it, it makes your job easier if the place you're building is based upon the 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 aesthetic rules of a movie. Um, oh, okay, I can do that. Um, you do know that that you're pitching something that has is not connected to a successful IP is less apt to be bought and funded. Right. At the moment, I would be hand wringing and naive to think that that's going to stay this way. Um, but at the moment, pretty much you're not doing anything unless it's connected to something that is deemed su- pre- previously successful in another format.
0: All right. Now, the flip side. uh, What's something about the state of present day theme park design that you find to be encouraging?
1: I think that that we're at the tipping edge of between augmented reality and virtual reality of moving into a new expectation on the audience part as to what a story is and how they want to participate in it. And I don't necessarily think that that means that I get a laser pistol and I get to shoot targets. I still don't think that that's what a good (laughs) theme park experience is. But I think what kinds of stories we tell are going to change the cautionary tale is that we can get a little too in love with the technology and one of the, the the customer complaints about some universal attractions is that they continually use projections very successfully in most cases to tell the story but when you feel like you're going from ride to ride to ride and you're having another projection experience they want something more environmental so there is the danger mm-hmm. that Oh, I have to put goggles on again? You know, every everything that I go on that we could get a little too goggle heavy uh, in our experiences. Or they could just hand out goggles at the entrance and
0: then everyone could spend the whole visit with a mild headache. <laughs> all right. Um, One last question, if I may. Okay. It's just a silly little design prompt. You don't have to go too much into it. Okay. Uh, all right. Don Carson, you are now the god of all theme parks. Congrats. <laughs> So what you're going to do is you're going to pick three attractions the first one you're going to remove the second one you're going to restore and the third one you're going to redesign it can be any attractions in the world they they can be disney's but they don't have to be you have unlimited time and unlimited budget and you get the final say in everything or or, you know the ideal crew who will do you know your ideal version of etc um so once again remove one attraction that you dislike restore one attraction that was either closed or changed and redesign one attraction that almost but doesn't quite do it for you. Which three attractions well, will you remove, restore, and redesign? Well,
1: that's a hard thing to ask. It's kind of like asking someone who their favorite movie is. Um, <laughs> well, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna somewhat answer your question. Um, uh, one of the things that I participate in in San Francisco is the the Dickens Christmas Fair. It's the best way. It's the same people that that invented and created the Renaissance Pleasure Fair, but they do an indoor, London Christmas Eve theatrical, streets of London experience.
0: They're working their way through the ages. It's
1: it's a wonderful, wonderful people. It's a theater piece that's I highly recommend if you're ever in the Bay Area during the holidays, go to it. But um, as a as a you know designer who is can't stop being a designer. Um, I used to spend a lot of times wandering around thinking, "Boy, I would love to change this. Oh, if only they could! If only the buildings had real brick. What if the windows were really glass? What if the lighting? What if the sky had stars in it?" And um, one and it's it's really sort of a plywood, homespun theatrical version of the streets of London. And one year, it seemed as though everything was just working. Everything was, you know. The schedules are early on. There was not the chaos that I was accustomed to. So sort of not, you know, what, things did, felt a, a little bit more polished, and I perceived that something was lost in that. And that something that that I hadn't thought about was that, you know, we could Starbucks eyes the world and have every single thing be designed just so. But what makes the world wonderful is the chaos of the fact that it isn't designed and isn't perfect. And that that sometimes the designer needs to step aside and allow things to be the way that things are. And if I all of a sudden was graced as God of theme parks and could take out and replace things that, that, um, that I wish were there, I think I wouldn't. I think I would just let it all be the way it was. With the exception, I, w- I bring the people mover back. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> really, really, whether the people mover back. Well, that
0: is a a, a frustratingly beautiful uh, response. I have to say, I'm I'm. Uh, uh, oh well, what are you gonna do? Thank you for throwing the the people mover in there. That <laughs> that uh, did make me feel like less of a big presumptuous snob. So I I appreciate that. All right, I have been educated. I have been validated. I have now been humbled. Uh, mm. Let's say we draw this to a close. Done. Thank you so much for joining me. You bet.
1: Thanks for asking me. Always happy to rattle
0: on about this stuff. I mean, be careful because I'll ask you back. Okay.
1: (laughs) And I probably won't answer your questions successfully then either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you were wonderful. Thank you so much, Don. I really, really appreciate
1: this. Thanks so much, Ian.
0: That was fun. Uh, I hope you in the audience enjoyed it as much as I did, and that you now want to spread the love. Uh, you can help us make everyone appreciate the unique ways that theme parks tell stories by subscribing, rating, and or reviewing the show. Uh, or you could even recommend it to family, friends, enemies, acquaintances, strangers, anyone you think might be interested. This interview was hosted by me, Ian K. You can find my portfolio of theme park design at enkthemes, that's the letter E-N-K-themes.com, and you can get in touch with me by emailing makingspacepodcast at gmail.com. My guest was Don Carson. You can find his portfolio at doncarsoncreative.com and you should, because Don draws some of my favorite concept art. You can also find Don's blog at themedenvironments.blogspot.com. That's themed, past tense with a D at the end, environments.blogspot.com. As you can tell from this interview, it's a treasure trove of insight about theme park design, video game design, virtual reality, visual composition, and more. If you like this show, you will love themedenvironments.blogspot.com. I'd also like to thank theme park designer George Mandela for helping to arrange this interview. Talking with Don was such a treat, and it all happened thanks to George. Cheers, pal. You can find George's blog at memelab.com. That's M-E-M-E labcom It's full of insights about the more experiential side of location art. The logo of this show was designed by Rob Yeo, and you can find his portfolio at robyeodesign.com. The music was composed by Alex Treese and you can hear more of his tracks at alextreese.bandcamp.com. Shall we explode to music? <music>